Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Just a brief note to kind of contextualize what you're about to hear. If you've been listening, you know, to most weeks recently, you know that I have gotten interested in this question of whether there is a masculinity crisis or at least a crisis for boys and men in the West, in the United States, Canada, stuff like that. And uh, sometimes the masculinity crisis language feels helpful, sometimes not. Um, But I wanted to get uh, kind of a spread of voices on the question. I'm going to be doing kind of masculinity uh, related episodes every, you know, every month or two, um, kind of throughout this year or some part of this year. And I figured I would start with someone who's a little bit to my right. So I'm talking today with Brant Hansen and, you know, he's coming out of the evangelical radio world. I do think he's an interesting character in that world. I don't think he's kind of your standard evangelical talking head author, thinker, what what have you. Um, and we talk a little bit about how he is different, uh, including his neurodivergence and the kind of stuff that he finds interesting and his approach to his own listeners and readers. But he wrote a book uh, a couple years ago about this subject and seemed as good a place as any to start. So you can consider Brant's perspective as one among many that we will be hearing over the course of these episodes throughout the year. Hope you enjoy it.
Brant Hansen, you are an interesting personality. For most of your career, you've been what appears to me, the language I would use is a, a pretty mainstream Christian radio host. But what? But from what I can tell, based on what you've written and focused on, always a little bit of an outsider's streak in that world. Uh, maybe like a truth teller, something like that, to an audience that from my perspective, is often marketed to specifically as if they can't handle much difficulty in their content. You were also diagnosed, I assume, years ago with Asperger's. And I assume that's years ago because that's not the language used anymore. It's now considered a part of autism spectrum disorder, generally with the added label of no support needed, someone who would have formerly gotten an Asperger's diagnosis. Right there. That's already enough that you're an interesting guy. I'm sure you've had an interesting career. I wonder what that's been like for you. I just, that's an open prompt for you to kind of respond to any of that. Well, yeah. So there's a couple of things about that. Number one, I'm not setting out to be a truth teller or to pop anybody's balloon or anything, but I I do think like being on a spectrum in some ways really helps me uh, to say stuff and I don't realize a lot of times that it's like shocking to people or, or bracing. Yeah. But I think if people give the show a chance, they come to appreciate that. I'm stupefied by a lot of church culture, honestly. Absolutely. I just don't even understand it. It's, it's bewildering. I don't get the connection between it and Jesus. And so I, I am on Christian radio and I'm thankful for that. And I talk about Jesus a lot. I find it odd that we don't like, I just don't get it. I don't know. I just, I don't, (laughs) I'm not in the Christian subculture for the t-shirts is what I say. Like, it's not good enough. The movies aren't good enough. The music, (laughs) like I'm in it for, because Jesus is compelling. I think he's, I think he's great news. So I love talking about that and it works because I, I honor the room I'm in. I mean, like people are turning on the radio. They're not looking to be, provoked or slapped or angered or made anxious if they do they go somewhere else so they, they're turning on a christian music station because they want they want some spiritual encouragement and in this yeah. culture i can understand that so I, I i recognize that that's the room i'm in and i want to be i want to be a blessing literally add value by blessing that's what i mean i want to add value to people's lives and that's that's the room they invited me in i want to i want to honor that well, I this is actually a, a nice kind of way to intro this thing because I am doing this sort of mini series on men's issues, you know, the the quote unquote masculinity crisis and and the connected issues to that. And I wanted to have you on in part because I did want a voice from, you know, further towards maybe the middle of American Protestantism or something. And, uh, you know, your publicist reached out about a book you've written more recently, but two books ago. You wrote a book <laughs> called "The Men We Need." Is that the name of the t- the title of the book? Yeah. Right, yeah. and so and it's like about masculinity being a, a good, godly man in the modern world. So I'm sorry, I'm not talking about the latest book. L- let's at least tell okay. us a little bit about the latest book, so that people can have that in the back of their mind. It's all right. My my books will do fine, whatever. But it's about, my book's about peace. Actually, living at peace in a world that's chaotic and anxious is called "Life is Hard, God is Good, Let's Dance," and I deliberately chose a mirthful title. Yeah, don't shirk away from problems in the world. In fact, much of the book is me traveling the world and I'm explaining what I'm seeing in uh, places like Niger and Ethiopia and 
India and all these places I've visited. Um, but at these hospitals that are for kids with disabilities, I want to explain to people through my own experiences, like I'm not, we're acknowledging the world is, is very broken, but there is a reason to be at peace. Mm. And so that's what the book is about. I try to make it funny too. Of course, that's in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. There was a, there was a legit effort to be funny in the books. So that's, that's what that book is. Well, to get into the the kind of masculinity crisis and, and, and the men we need, I, I like to kind of start with that phrase. Like, do you think there is a masculinity crisis? Uh, is there something like what concerns you about what's going on with men and or boys in, in the West? Uh, let's just say I'm not, I'm not trying to diagnose Asia at this point. Let's just talk about the West. Um, but, you know, like, is that a good term? Is it an accurate term? How does it sort of relate with what you're actually concerned about that's going on right now? Well, let me let me ask you a question. Like, how would you define masculinity? Is it is it even something that you can define? This is that this is the good stuff, Brant. This is what I'm here to talk about. I I mean, that is one of the questions. I I, I kind of have it slated for later, but we can talk about it now. No, I would love to. I'd love to know. Like, I'd okay. love to know your take on it. You've been thinking about it and talking to people. In your mind, what is a distinct idea of masculinity? This is, uh, by the way, a masterclass in radio. Here, everybody, did you hear? <laughs> did you notice how Brant just turned this around on no, his host? Well, it's because no. it's because no. I honest, I'm genuinely curious. I don't normally employ this. It's not a tactic or anything. I just I, I want to hear because yeah. it has to do with my answer mm-hmm. to that question, which is a great question. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm actually really kicking this around. I think I come to this question from a unique angle that is probably not super common. Okay, cool. When I think about gender, um, you know, of course I was raised, so, so you don't know this, I was raised what I call moderate California evangelical. So yes, evangelical, but not in the South, not Baptist. My dad is a therapist. My mom is a Christian school teacher who likes jokes with swear words. You know, they had the occasional glass of wine. Uh, it was not fundamentalist really by any means, not my household, not my church. Some of my mm-hmm. Christian schooling uh, certainly was populated by fundamentalists. They are the people who did me the most harm, but I didn't get that harmed. You know, so masculinity, of course, there's a there's a vision of it in, in that world, uh, you know, of the 1990s in evangelical America, which mapped pretty closely on to kind of standard male, female gender roles really, really from the 1950s on is probably the, the, the best shorthand for it. Now I'm 40 years old. I have completed coursework for a doctorate in psychology. I have a different angle and I've also, you know, I've deconstructed and, and kind of reformed a lot of the specifics around my Christian faith, which includes basically everything related to sex and gender. So the way I come at it now is I think of masculinity Probably the way I would want to understand it is a collection of attributes, all of which are more likely to be found in greater levels in people who are biologically male. And femininity is a clump of traits that are more likely to be found in people who are biologically female. You know, there is some kind of empirical reality where, where I differ from my upbringing is it's not binary. It's not a light switch. And if God gives you a penis, then you get all this stuff. But if God gives you a vagina, then you get all this stuff. And we should be threatened by people bending those. You know, I don't, I don't buy any of that. 
where I tend to differ from maybe my further left friends is I think there is a biological reality, but I would describe it as a bell curve. So the, the closer you are to the middle of the bell curve, the more traditionally masculine you're going to be. That having been said, masculinity and our definitions of it do change from culture to culture, which makes it harder to kind of pin this stuff down. Uh, so when I'm coming at the question, I am, I literally think of it in terms of which items get mapped onto the bell curve and which don't. And my guess is that sounds like an alien perspective to half of people who hear it. They'd be like, that is not how I would approach this question, but that's my honest answer to your question. And I'm curious where you take that. Honestly, I hope this isn't a bad news thing to you, but I, I think you basically said common sense idea about it's these traits I would normally associate with men. I mean, mm -hmm. that's what he's just said. So what I'm trying to do in the book, though, is to offer like a distinctly good and beautiful and motivating vision. Yeah. And I don't think that exists. Hmm. I don't think many guys can talk to a younger guy and say, now here's what masculinity looks like when it's at its best. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah, because I think, uh, I think otherwise you wind up with a bunch of Andrew Tate juniors out there. And I think it's absolutely idiocy and uh, horrible. And it's terrible for women. It's terrible for children. It's terrible for vulnerable people. If men are casting about not knowing what to do. It's interesting about Asia. I mean, if you want to talk about Asia, Japan has a hikikomori problem, uh, which is guys just playing video games and porn in their in their rooms, not even leaving their apartments. And their mom's bringing them food. They'd be 25, 30 years old. They're not even leaving. The government's trying to draw them out into mainstream culture, but they're shut-ins effectively mm -hmm. to technology. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing. So I do think there is a crisis in that sense. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing. Like, what, what is a 15-year-old guy? But there, but there is something different. It's not just vagina and penis, though we know that. We're not that simplistic. There's over 100, 100 obvious physiological differences in the human brain between male and female. You can go to, there's a Stanford study. I was just reading about that. They printed it in 1970, 2017. You'd have to get a brain transplant to take care of that. Like there's something there. So while I respect uh, other viewpoints, I'm looking at, there is a crisis of guys who don't know what they're, what they're supposed to be. So I'm actually taking a shot at that. Rather than just saying generically, like, we should all be like Jesus. No, I think there's something that there's content to maleness and there's content to femaleness. And they're both the, the, the image of God. God is male and female, it says, and it, it, like in Genesis 127. And, and Jesus repeats that. Jesus himself repeats that. So those things must mean something. And I, that's what, that's what I'm doing with the book. I take a very concrete shot at going, this is what we're for. And, and the neat thing about it, I think, is for a guy like me, I'm not handy. I don't have a truck. I can't do axe throwing because I don't see very well. <laughs> like, you don't want me at, I, I'm a nerd. I had guys making fun of me, you know, when I was in high school, accusing me of being gay and all that sort of stuff because I wasn't into their thing. I didn't play yeah. football. I played the flute. All of that stuff in small town America, you can expect for a, for a kid who's not manly that gets thrown at him, manly in the, in the quotes. Yeah. So I'm actually writing this book. I even subtitled it, God's Purpose for the Manly Man, the Avid Indoorsman, and Any Man Willing to Show Up. I wanted a vision that I think is biblical. I think it's true. And um, it applies to everybody, every man. 
not just guys that enjoy military stuff and shooting right. guns and stuff, which I, I'm not into that. God's plan for the short-sighted flautist in your midst. Bam. Since you have published a book and put forth a positive vision. Yes. This is kind of the thing I'm most interested in. Yeah. People who are like, all right, cards on the table. Here's what I think for lack of a better term, a non-toxic masculinity looks like. I mean, I, I don't know if you'd agree. I certainly think toxic masculinity as a phrase, it definitely gets at something that is unhealthy in society. Yes, entirely. Yeah. And so then, and I think that most of those critiques are correct. Yes. And yet I think you and I agree there, there's a real lack of sort of alternative positive visions. Certainly there's nothing resembling a consensus on yes. a non-toxic masculinity. So I want to hear kind of your process of coming to your main vision. So uh, okay. the, the vision that you kind of lay out and, and then well, listeners can consider this among other alternatives as I talk to different people. Absolutely. Maybe I'm nuts. Maybe I'm totally crazy. But I noticed something when I was when I went to college, University of Illinois, I was 17 and I showed up and we were given a tour of this women's house. And it was really weird, man. This was in the late 80s. You could go room to room when there was the same stupid poster in every single women's room at the time. And it's still one of the maybe the most successful poster of all time. It's a it's a photo taken by a Frenchman. It's called L'Enfant. But it's of this shirtless guy and he's holding a baby. And it's in a profile sort of thing. So you can see the baby's face. You can see this guy's profile. I said to like by the fifth time I saw it, I said to the student that was there, like that was her room, like, what's the deal with this guy? And she's like, well, he's cute and everything, but it's the way the baby's looking at him. Hmm. And I looked at that. I was like, that's really interesting. And the, well, it, if you can look it up online, but the baby's looking up at him, like in a really trusting, vulnerable way, like you're going to take care of me. Right. And that had such appeal to the female mind, obviously that makes an impression on me. I was like, what is it about that? What is it about? I, I've done this with, with groups of people. I'll show a bunch of pictures just randomly picked from Google, right? It's, it's of men in the news do, like rescuing people. So, or animals even like pulling a goat out of a flood or, and these are guys from all different ethnicities all around the world rescuing somebody from a roof, taking somebody, an old lady out of a burning village. Mm -hmm. I'll just cycle through these photos. And then I'll ask someone, say, Hey, I had a question for the females in this room. Like, are those guys attractive? And there's a visceral unanimous. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I go back. I said, guys, I want you to notice something. I go back slowly through. None of those guys are models. You can't even, you can barely see some of them. A lot of them are overweight. But let me tell you this, Brant, I pulled up L'Enfant, the 1987 yeah. poster. Yeah. This dude's a model. He looks like well, Austin yeah. Butler who plays Elvis. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. He looks so like James that's Dean. That's it. But there's, yeah. a, there's a billion pictures of that guy. Sure. Why is yeah. it this one? Why photo? is it there's this a, one? Yeah. There's a billion pictures of a lot of good looking guys. Yeah. But that, that it, I just bring that up to say, this is what resonated with me. And then- I noticed something in Genesis where Adam is given this job of keeper of the garden. He's, he's the protector of this garden. He's the cultivator. 
He's supposed to protect and cultivate this garden. And I think about the vulnerable people in my life as my garden, the people around me. If I have any sphere of influence at all, I may not be the roughest, toughest, fightingest, whatever, whatever. But you know what? When you cultivate and you protect the vulnerable in your life, it's extremely beautiful to women when you make them feel more secure, not threatened. See, that's where the toxic thing comes in. Then you're not being a keeper of the garden. You're actually threatening the vulnerable inside your garden. That's toxic. It's horrible. But I tell like younger guys, you're given strength for a reason. You're given a risk-taking thing for a reason at, the, at your age. Like It's to protect the vulnerable. It's not to threaten them. So is this kind of like the the first principle of of sort of like your this vision of masculinity is masculine people yeah keeper of the garden protecting of the vulnerable that that kind of a thing and cultivate so like if I'm keeping a garden there are species that would die in the wild but they get to thrive and bloom and flourish because I'm for them yeah now I think about again this is this is not that I own people that I own this garden you're just part of my no it just means I come underneath like I want to cultivate the people around me so that they get to flourish. That's my, that's my job. And if somebody threatens the vulnerable, I defend them. It's your sphere of influence. Yeah. So it's just through your community, your neighborhood, the people around you. So in my, in my role, like I'm not like I've, I've said this, I'm not the manliest man guy. I'm not into that stuff, but like I get to work with these, this hospital network. It's kids that have disabilities. We fix them for free. We do it in the name of Jesus. This is the most, like, this is the most Jesus-shaped thing I've ever been a part of. It, it makes sense to me. Like, we heal people and tell them that they're not cursed, that God actually loves them. But I get to use my words to do this. But I've, I've had a chance to be a part of healing thousands of kids by doing whatever I can with whatever skills I have. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. So that's my sphere of influence. It's, it's I use what I have, my platform, for that purpose. And I, so my book is about that, spelling this out and how people respond to that. The, the interesting thing is the women, some very intelligent, independently minded women are going, yes, thank you. That's exactly what we would like from the men in our lives. And when, and I'm telling guys too, if you don't show up, you're passive. And I say, I say passive, meaning like you're not engaged with your wife. You just, you sunk into yourself or in your hobbies or whatever. You're actually a threat to her. You're not making the home feel more secure. Your words, cutting her down, being sarcastic, like instead of you're doing the exact, you're, you're, you're the threat. You're the intruder in the house that you need to be defended from, that she needs to be defended from rather than you being her defender. That's, that's the exact opposite of who you're supposed to be. Any conversation about masculinity is going to run up against a category issue right so oh, sure yeah uh, sure you know like one of the big maybe unanswerable questions here um but it is one thing that i'm i'm hoping to get some clarity on myself through this series is are there types of masculinity that are like better or only or you know usually should be kind of engaged in by people who are biologically male or how much is masculinity something that men and women and anybody anywhere on the spectrum can participate in uh, such that it's this rewarding thing. And then immediately in my mind, I go, okay, well to the, like 
morally and my basic intuition is like to lean heavily toward the latter uh, because I don't believe in the binary then, but then like the devil's advocate is like, okay, but the more you emphasize that, the less distinctive it will feel for the people for whom the distinctiveness will be helpful. And, you know, like how many young men are going to be excited about all the ways that they can engage in their inherent femininity alongside their masculinity, like the other side of that coin. That one is tough for me. Uh, I, I don't, cause I don't have a dogmatic view on it either from like a, a culturally conservative kind of Christian lens, nor from a hyper progressive, like tabula rasa, all of this stuff is societally constructed kind of leftist view. I find neither of those convincing. I find myself in this tough kind of gray area middle So just, I wanted to kind of get your take on that. Like everything we've talked about thus far, we're talking about men. What do you do when women ask you, Brant, I can protect the vulnerable. I can cultivate my garden. You know, like, like, how do you, how do you think about that? I think that's, I totally get it. I I, I feel like there's some things like you articulated in the beginning about uh, there's certain packages of masculine ideas that tend to be actually they do tend to be cross-cultural they're not it's not quite as relativistic as it's made yeah. out to be like we can we, we've been trying to send out anthropologists to find an island where you know everything is completely inverted it doesn't quite work out that way no and you've got to imagine i mean i don't know i don't know what you think about this certainly i i do know what a lot of your audience thinks about this i'm 100 percent convinced by evolution evolutionary science and i think that there must be you know, cert, like we're just, we've got literally 500 million years of biological evolution and 200,000 as modernly modern anatomic human homo sapiens and another 2 million maybe as like proto-human. And this is baked into our DNA. And there are going to be certain things that we should be able to measure on a bell curve again, not binary, but measure on a bell curve that are going to be cross-cultural because it is going to have to do with and like you were talking about brain differences, psychologists know that there are gender differences for certain medications. There are gender differences for certain kinds of interventions. You know, like it's it, sure. it is frankly, I think, silliness to pretend that there is no difference. Let me talk about that a little bit, because the, the, like just hormonally, all the stuff that we're equipped, men are stronger generally than women. Generally speaking, it's true. Physical um, strength. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so when it comes to defending a village, for instance. Like, so, there's just, it's not that women can't do it, but there may be something beautiful about what we're given as men, too. And it may be really wonderful. There's and a technology still- thing there, too, though, right? Because 100,000 years ago, there was not really a replacement for physical strength. Like, you might have a spear. Okay. Uh, you okay. have right. you have right. some technology, but now that you've got an AR-15, a woman right. who is trained to f- use a firearm it has way better chance of protecting her village than a man who's not. Right. But if we're gonna get, if we're, like, I'm coming at this from somebody who does believe in God, right, and that God is actually good, and that He did, like, however you want to interpret Genesis one or mm-hmm. two or three or four, like as a great story or as a, he did give Adam this job. And then when Adam passively allows a, an enemy into the garden that he's supposed to protect, he passively does it. God's response is, Adam, where are you? Right. 
So, yes, absolutely. All these things are true. But in terms of our purpose, is there an actual purpose to masculinity? I think there is. I think it's beautiful. I could write a book about femininity. It wouldn't be as good. I don't think yeah, it's you as wouldn't neat. know it as well either, right? I mean, that, you know, maybe your wife could write that book. Yeah, but the other thing is too, we can we can be theoretical all, all day, and I, I love that stuff too. I I love all the theory and discussion of that. But at some point, honestly, guys don't know what they're supposed to be doing, and if they did the stuff that I'm talking about and they understood it, oh, I'm not supposed to be a threat to women. I'm supposed to defend them. If I'm making them feel insecure by harassing them, by leering at them, whatever, then I'm betraying my role. I'm actually a traitor to who I'm supposed to be. So if men actually did this, women would be way better off. And, and like, it's pretty obvious. I, I feel pretty strongly about being able to talk to younger guys, especially, but also older guys. They have no clue. They can't articulate masculinity at all. So I'm taking a shot at it. Well, no, and I, and I think that that's helpful. I think when you appeal to Genesis, uh, I'll be honest that what happens inside of my mind and my associations from growing up evangelical is I get wild at heart, you know, John Eldridge flags ringing in my ear. And it's like the the main argument, as I recall from that book, which was wildly popular when I was a youth group kid, um, was like women really want to be rescued and men really want to be rescuers. Okay, but but I should be allowed to to go to Genesis without John Eldridge being oh, part of it. I, that's and to be clear, I'm I don't I don't think you're responsible for that baggage. You didn't write that book, right? Right. Uh, but I would imagine that maybe other listeners might have something similar. So I thought let's get that let's let's discuss yeah, that because I yeah. think there are and I actually think it's really interesting to talk about how we might use the Bible. You kind of mentioned that whether you think it happened or if it's a beautiful story or whatever. I want to actually just give you like a paragraph on how I'm trying to understand the Bible in this like massively, you know, liberal mainline kind of a changed lens that I am now operating with. And it's something like this. The text of scripture, I try and treat it as wisdom literature. So if it made it in and it stuck around long enough that it that the editors kept it in. This is Old Testament or New Testament. I actually could apply this to other scriptures of other religions as well. That if it gets that far, then it was tremendously useful. If if the oral tradition of the Genesis story, let's just say, you know, there's two creation accounts. That's what most Old Testament scholars think, kind of blended together by the editor of the the Pentateuch, the the first five books of of the old Testament. So let's just say one of them is from, you know, the oral tradition dates back to 1300 BC. Let's just throw that out there as a rough year. People think that that five book collection was finalized probably during exile around 370 BC. That means that for 1000 years for every successive generation of Israelite, that language is continuing to be useful to them. It is helping them define themselves. Now, whether or not it's true, I'm like, leave that to the side, whether or not it happened, whether or not it's inspired by God, just merely the fact it's useful. They keep retelling it around the fire. It keeps getting recited at synagogue or in the tent before they have a temple or at the temple or, you know, whatever. Obviously synagogues come later, I realize historically, but at the temple or their home church or whatever, If it's there, it was helpful. It was working. It was making sense of things. So at bare minimum, I'm very comfortable starting there and saying, okay, 
what made sense about this stuff. And you had me thinking about Larry Crabb and his nineties book, the silence of Adam, where he's talking about like, where are you, Adam? Like, why are you being silent and, and not here? You're like bringing up memories of better Christian stuff. I read when I was 20 years old, <laughs> Good, um, you know? And, and so like, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not pinning John Eldridge on you or anything, but I, I you know, know, it, I, it's, it's different. But you're hitting on something that I run into quite a bit. I'll be honest, which is, I'd like people would rather react than learn more. And I'm not saying you're doing that, but I run, I'm just, you, you rang the bell for me with something I've run into and I get the reaction. I was raised in a preacher's home that was utter trauma and horror and flandering and divorces and violence and fundamental Bible preaching. That's how I was raised. Now I can react to that the rest of my life. Or I can see that this kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about is really compelling. Mm -hmm. So I, I see a lot of people reacting to their, you know, now that I think about it, DC talk sucks or something like it's <laughs> like, okay, man, but let's, there, there's something beautiful about the kingdom and there's new ways to understand Like, like the Bible, for instance, I was like, okay, enough of the Bible. I'm sick of worshiping the Bible. That's why I felt like I was raised. I'm going to focus on Jesus himself. I've kind of come back to, wait a second, Jesus is quoting the Bible almost every time he opens his mouth. Yeah. You can't, you can't understand the character of Jesus without understanding no, the he, Old Testament. He, yeah. he regards it as authoritative. Mm -hmm. Like just like even Genesis 127, like we were just talking about, like that, that we're created in the image of God, male and female, he created them. That Those two things are in the image of God. So male and female together is like this recreation of God's image is really incredible. Like he regarded that as authoritative. So if I'm a Jesus guy, I can't just be like, well, I don't really care about the Bible. Like he's making so many references like to Ezekiel and stuff. I had no clue, but almost everything he says, he's brilliantly calling back and linking back to mm -hmm. the scripture that he has memorized. So I don't, I've realized I've got to hold it in, in a higher regard than just going, eh, done with that. I just want to focus on Jesus. Doesn't make any sense. If you really enjoy and really value what you hear on this show, you can support it financially by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Dan Koch. That link is in the show notes. It's seven bucks a month and it includes access to at least two exclusive episodes per month that main feed listeners don't get to hear, as well as advertising free uh, main feed episodes on your special patron feed, as well as membership in the Facebook group which is an incredible online community of like-minded people asking very similar questions, helping each other with resources, you know, just, just kind of sharing stories, feeling less alone. Uh, I'm, I'm mixing it up in that group all the time, as is Josh Gilbert uh, and often Kristen and Sari who work on marketing stuff. It's a, it's a cool community. Um, it helps me make this show, uh, helps me uh, pay for my time, as well as the costs of paying for Josh. Kristen and Sari and, and other, you know, associated costs with the show. So I'd really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we can, uh, we can make this, make this world a better place together. Is that too, is that reaching too far? I don't know. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke. Let's get back to the episode. I wonder, is there a way like in your mind, 
to come from a more biblical perspective, so I, I recognize you latching on to that, you know, male and female, he created them. From my perspective, I'll say, yeah, like from a wisdom literature perspective, like that kind of language for a thousand years continued to be, you know, just to briefly address a critique from the left. No, I do not believe that the words of the Bible that we have are the ones we have because powerful people made sure that those were the only words. I do think some of that happened. Certainly there probably is stuff that was written by women over the years that got excluded, that shouldn't have gotten excluded. I would, I would bet my house on that, but no, like there's also like a very organic element of like this stuff shaped the worship practices of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. And it's, it's this gorgeous collection of books that we have and, and, and concepts and poetic images like the two shall become one and the, you know, the two sides of the coin. I want to borrow an image to help me ask this question in Plato's symposium. There is, and this is by the way, happening in a parallel track to ancient Israel. As far as we know, there was no interaction between these two cultures. Not really. Maybe later, like new Testament times a bit more, but like Plato's around two, 300 BC and in the symposium, Socrates, it might be Socrates or somebody else, I think it's somebody else, gives a vision that when the gods created men and women, they were basically two half circles. And like it was like a complete circle that the gods ripped apart. And that's why men and women try and find each other and become super linked and romantic and, and partnered up is because when they come together, they then make that perfect circle again. But without each other. They're a half circle. And it's like, you know, this very Greek kind of perfect symmetry, you know, whatever people who know that stuff can read all that into it. But that too is an image that has been very poetically powerful for 2000 years in, in understanding love stories and understanding why we're drawn to each other. So this male and female, he created them this kind of two sides of a coin. What I'm wondering from you is, do you see it where it's like, if we can kind of carve out pretty well what masculinity looks like and what femininity looks like that these things paired together do a thing like that symposium image of like, this is the completion and together when that happens, that's something beautiful and whole, almost like beans and rice make a complete protein or whatever. I think it's beautiful. I would, I would hate to anybody to think they're incomplete though in another okay. themselves. You know what I mean? So I don't, yeah. but there's a rabbinical picture of male and female, and it's based on the, the Hebrew that's actually used there in Genesis. And I can't remember what it is. It's something Keneg though or something, but it's of like two, two by fours that are leaning against each other. And so they hold each other up, but it's tension that does it. So there's this ever present tension, but it actually lifts us both up because of the tension. And I really like that image a lot like and it doesn't have to be in marriage per se just in just in humanity there's something really beautiful about that and i think we we can lose that if we just i think we have that's why i think it's wonderful to be able to, to articulate a vision of masculinity that upholds women so if you read my book you'll see i have a chapter called the jesus master class on how to treat women and i note that the first christian missionary in history is a woman. It's the woman that he met at the well. He does this deliberately. To this day, I've been in cultures, I've been in Afghanistan several times, I've been in cultures working with these hospitals where women are not allowed in the room with us 
to eat. We sit on the living room floor. There's a curtain in these cultures and they can slide the food or send them in with the kids, but we don't get to see the women. They're not even allowed to discuss things with us. Yeah. And here's Jesus in that same sort of culture, like honoring Mary and yeah. Martha. He's honoring Mary because she's the one who stays and sits at his feet. She's not supposed to be there. And he's like, he, she's exactly where she should be. To your point about power and some of the some of the literature getting changed in the Bible, recently restored is an apostle named Junia. She was rubbed out for centuries. They changed the name to Junius, which is a name that doesn't even exist, just to try to masculinize it and try to ignore yeah. that this woman apostle. Like, there's all of these. Yeah, so that stuff's real for sure. Women are honored by Jesus and yeah. and defended and honored and like. That's pretty cool. And I, I, I try really hard to get that across. The other thing I try to get across is that Eve, it's, it's, she's called a helpmate, but that doesn't catch it at all. The word is much more about helping in a way like you're rescuing somebody. Yeah. And in fact, that same word is used to describe God throughout the Old Testament and his willingness to rescue his people. Very early episode of this podcast, like in the first 15 or 30 episodes or something, we are now in the like the mid 200s uh, with uh, Carolyn Custis James was about that. And she talks about that particular word uh, in mm -hmm. Hebrew and the way it's used. And that's a perfect example of the way that sexism has and patriarchy have really kind of crept into Christian tradition because that is tradition. Now we are talking about the way that the people who in, who com comprise the church uh, and the people who translate the Bibles and stuff like that, sort of taking these things that are like very much not in the text. The biggest bugaboo with conservative critiques of progressive Christians is we're, that we are caving to culture. And it's always like, you think you think that Trump is not a culture? that you're caving to. I mean, anyway, so this, but like, yeah, patriarchal sexist culture. Um, these are, these are examples of how that's happened. I think that the reason that I, the reason that I put some of this, I would, I think pushback is too hard of a term for what I'm doing, but the reason that I kind of set up some of these hedges is because what I know listeners of my show, what we have mostly heard from people who have some sort of quote unquote biblical model of gender and, and, and masculinity, femininity, sexuality, et cetera, is it is used as it does end up being used as a bludgeon. If you are not, if you don't fit in the categories, right? So if you're queer or if you're trans, or if you are a feminine man or a masculine woman, whatever we mean by that, of course, which we're trying to define, you know, but like it ends up excluding people who don't fit. And it ends up happening even when pastors, writers, speakers seem so chill and so cool about it. But then like you get them down to the nub and it's like, no, actually you're, you're out. And I've even been surprised by that happening in times where I thought, whoa, is he, is he going where I think he's going? No. Okay. Yep. Still out. Uh, you know, and so j just to motivate that, like, that's why I do that is not, I'm not trying to hold all of that at your feet or like lay those sins at the feet of your cross. So to speak like that's yeah. not your responsibility, but that's the, that's the history that, that I've yeah. come into this podcast with and so many listeners as well. Well, and uh, for, as a, as a uh, flute playing <laughs> kid from a, a really bad Christian background, 
with neurological problems. Like, I get it. I don't want to be left out either. There again, there are so many tropes. Whenever the church talked about masculinity for me growing up, and even as an adult, when I would see it go on, I'm more of a of, of organic, simple church kind of guy. But when I would see it done, they would talk about men's night. Well, we're guess what we're gonna do? We're gonna have steaks and we're gonna throw axes and we're gonna again, there's nothing wrong with that per se. But that's there's an awful lot of guys that doesn't that's not masculinity. Those are the trappings. But those aren't really it. So I th- I think we should be able to articulate something. I think the word has to have some content. And I think what I'm doing, I'm trying to do, is offer something that is not wild at heart. Somebody yeah. called my book mild at heart. I got a kick <laughs> out of that. Uh, that's, but I, I think that's pretty good. Articulate yeah. something that's, that's life-giving. It's actually inspiring. A lot of men, they're like, yes, I get it now. I get it. There's, there's different aspects to it in the book that we're not going to be able to cover, but and it winds up being a blessing to the people around them. We got time for another. Give, give us one more thing. So I, I like protect the vulnerable, cultivate the garden, not threaten, you know, protect, not threaten. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there another like principle that we could, we could kind of talk about for 10 or 15 minutes? Well, sure. I mean, a lot of guys don't think they're spiritual. The church is set up along the lines, like the rest of the culture. Our culture is very feelings oriented. It's very about our emotions. I mean, we're hyper consumeristic. It's like, what do I desire now? And that is reality. And I try to convince guys, don't write yourself off that way. I think what God's looking for through scripture, it's not much about emotions, about like you have to feel God's presence. I hear that in church circles. I almost never feel that. Does that mean he's not there? I don't think so. I don't think it changes reality. I don't think my feelings change reality like that. And I think that's really good news. So my feelings might come and go. You might have a, a period in your life. You just felt God was so close and now you don't. doesn't mean he changed. Our emotions are dependent on tons of stuff. What we ate, you know, what happened to a conversation we had 10 minutes ago, the thing we forgot to do, like how much sleep we get. Yeah. C.S. Lewis says, is it the Holy Spirit or indigestion? Yeah, totally. Yeah, Uh, exactly. But but also one little thing there. I mean, when I teach cognitive distortions to my therapy clients, these are regular ways that human beings tend to think irrationally, especially when we're anxious or depressed. You know, one of the big cognitive distortions is emotional reasoning. And it says, since I feel this way, this other thing must be true. So if I think that I'm a schmuck, then... I am bad and people see it, you know, but it's like, well, actually how I feel about something is not really evidence. And I'll talk about it. I talk about an example of like a courtroom, sir, who do you see the man who shot her in this room? Yes. He's right there. And how do you know it's him? Did you see him? Well, no, but I've got a real bad feeling about that guy. (laughs) Well, Sorry, that's not admissible. That does not count towards our our deciding if this guy's guilty or not. Right? Realize what you're saying. That's high. I would say in our culture, that's high heresy, Uh, and I I agree with you. But well, in the therapy room, it's 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 basically uh, uncontested, at least in cognitive therapy. Now, emotions are incredible sources of information about us. We, I am always looking for the best emotional word someone can find because that's like the best clue as to whatever's going on. So emotions are tremendously important, uh, but they, they don't tell us they, they're not a very good pointer to what's true outside of us. 
is probably yeah, the way of so saying it. There, there's a reality that it exists ex- exclusive in my opinions and my feelings mm-hmm. and my like Dallas yeah. Willard said that reality is what you run into when you're wrong. I love Willard. I, I, I thought that was good. Um, yeah. So, so what I'm trying to tell guys is like real spirituality. And this is true for women too, but I'm just, I'm talking to guys because and there are women that feel this way too. They're like, I don't have any emotions about oh, God. Totally. Yeah. I, I spoke about this at one church first couple that came up. She's like, that's me. My husband's all emotional. He's at worship service. He feels this and that. And I'm an engineer. I'm analytical. I don't feel this. I was so, I felt so good to hear that. Thank you. But what I would say is God's actually looking for loyalty. He's not looking for emotions. I mean, emotions can be good. He's looking for loyalty, like a believing, steadfast loyalty. So I keep showing up to talk to him, even though I don't feel anything today. I'm still going to talk to him about what we're doing in, in life together. That's actually a spirituality that guys can get their head around. Like I, yeah. I can understand loyalty, even though I'm a, I'm, I mess up. I do wrong things. I can still keep coming back. What do you do when, when women respond with like, dude, I'm a mother of four. My whole job is protecting the vulnerable, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, like where does yeah. that, I guess, I guess what I mean is like, e- even imagine like a, a healthy, you know, family with a, a mother and a father and, and multiple kids, like let's say a dad who works 40 hours a week and helps in the evenings and on the weekends. But in terms of the hours spent protecting children, you know, nourishing them, cultivating the, the garden of the children, so to speak, I could imagine a, a wife being like, I mean, you guys are talking about masculinity, but like I, you know, and I appreciate when my husband does that, but I do more of it than he does, you know, in terms of hours. We're in this culture, aren't we? Like a pre-industrial revolution, you have a different formula about who's home. Hmm. Like dad, you're involved in the family business, usually one way or the other. It's, it's usually agrarian, but it might be you're making shoes in the shop and in the house. So dad's home all the time. Yeah. But once we started thinking it's normal for men to have to go into battle and leave the family for hours. And like, well, that's just normal. That's what you do. That's what a man does. Like, well, that's not what always a man has done. Even in Western culture, that's not normal chronologically. Like <laughs> yeah. we, we invented this. So it just to say that a woman has to do more of it. It's like, well, that that's true. That's the way we set it up. I don't know that. I don't know what that means though, in terms of, in terms of what I'm trying to motivate guys to, to, to be. I think as long as you're not making protect the vulnerable an exclusive claim for the men, no, I think you, know you get out of, yeah, I mean, and I don't think you are, I'm no, just, I'm trying to, I'm thinking of like questions people might have, you know, and trying to ask them on their behalf. Let me ask you the kind of last thing I want to talk about is getting really practical here. So you've, you've kind of presented this stuff. You've talked with many audiences about it. Like the way that I'm thinking of, like, if I were to give this as a journal prompt, to a client, for instance, as homework, I would, I would give them a question like, okay, if, if this is what we're looking for and w- maybe we're working on masculinity questions with, with a younger guy or, or whatever. And it's like, okay, your journal prompt for the week is where in my life do I have opportunities to protect the vulnerable and cultivate the people right. and things that are within my garden? And, so, and mm-hmm. I, I figure you probably like that question. That's a very quite open, straightforward phrasing. What have people answered? Like, what are some examples that people have shared with you when they have applied this practically to their lives? Well, I mean, usually you've already got a, a, a sphere. 
you've already got people around you. No one else is put in your exact context, but. So identifying the, the particulars of your own sphere is kind of a helpful uh, sure. uh, I mean, first step. Sometimes it's obvious if you do have kids, for instance, right. Or if you're an uncle or you're a, your school teacher or you work at an old folks home or like people should feel more secure because you're there. Hmm. Or they should be more secure, even if they don't feel it, if they don't know, like your neighborhood should be, if, if, if young men really understood this vision and got around, got their heads around it, like it would be good to see a big pack of 20 year olds running around outside. You'd be like, cool, we got the strongest, they're in their athletic prime, they're willing to take risk and they will defend us. We're safe because they're here. Like, that'd be beautiful. These guys could be running the combine tomorrow and they got my back. Yeah. Right. Like that, that that's what you're making. That's ideal. Yes. Like the, you had, yeah. you have strength yeah. for a reason and it's not to exploit. It's, it's to do the opposite. It's to, it's to be life giving. Well, that's, that's the example. I'll, I'll give you another example. This is my personal life. As I talked to my son about this, he's a pretty good example. He is, uh, he was also on the spectrum. He is not an athlete. He's never cared about sports really at all. He likes words. He likes to learn. So he went to Berkeley. We homeschooled him all the way through high school. And then he went to Cal Berkeley and got his degree in Russian literature and linguistics. And then he served as an Intel officer. And now I would take him to these hospitals that I visit around the world. Cure is what it's called. Cure.org if anyone wants to check it out. But he would stand in the OR and watch what was going on in the operating room. He's like, I want to do this. So now he's at Yale Medical School. And he's planning to be a neurosurgeon. He's in his third year and he wants to serve at Cure. He wants to help kids that have disabilities that could be fixed. And like, that's his, he's like, I have these skills. I'm really good. I mean, the guy is really smart, but I'm really good at certain things. And I want to use them to be life-giving. And the moms who come in, it's almost exclusively moms that come into these hospitals because the dads will leave if there's a kid with a disability. They'll be like, you're cursed. I'm out of here. But these moms feel protected and loved that someone cares about their child. And so for my son, he's got, he doesn't have a big truck, doesn't care about that stuff, but he can do this and it'll, it's going to be protective for probably thousands of kids and their, and their moms. That's pretty cool. So there's usually a way, even with whatever skills we have, we can, we can bring it to bear on behalf of the vulnerable. And it's, it's a way to love them people that can't do anything for you. And I, I, I think that's very resonant with who Jesus wants us to be. I mean, that's, that's where I'm coming from. I, I really like that last phrase for people who can't do anything for you. I mean, that, that right. is where it kind of gets into the teachings of Jesus for me, the least of these. Yeah. Because, you know, like I'm a therapist and uh, that's helping people. Also get to charge a pretty good wage for that work, so they're helping me, you know. Hey. Uh, and you know, I I have sliding scale clients, and there that's a little bit more this way. And you know, there's discernment there around how much am I really kind of giving of myself in in a in a sort of emptying of self kind of a way, and how much am I participating in the modern economy? And I don't think there's anything wrong with participating in the modern economy. And also it was really fucking expensive to get a doctorate. So I'm glad to pay myself back for that, Um, (laughs) you know, but like, uh, but yeah, it's, there's so many things here. I just, I want to say Brant that I think there's something very deep and beautiful about the concept of, and I think there's a, a, a lot of depth that individuals can go to 
if they follow that path in their own particular particularity, their own situation, where, where do I have opportunities to do that? And what is my sphere? Right. And, and, you know, for some of us, that's more obvious than for others, but we all can, can kind of think about that. It's a really good thing to chew on. And, you know, I, that's all I got to ask you about. If you have any final thoughts before we kind of sign no, off. I, I, uh, for people who are listening and they're like, I, I think I got this church thing or Jesus thing figured out. I don't really like it that much. I would, the way I've been able to reorient from the past hypocrisies and hurt and trauma and stuff has been uh, actually seeing what the kingdom of God really is. And uh, like, I, it's hard to resist once you see it. So Jesus is saying the kingdom's breaking through and he, he proves it by healing people. He does it over and over and over. He does it. He could have done any number of miracles, but that's what he does. So it's like this advanced trailer of heaven. Like it's breaking through now. People are being healed. Do you see this? And then he tells his followers to go do that as well, to show the kingdom is here. But I think people deep down are yearning for it. And I think he was born under the reign of Caesar Augustus, who I, I guess I just read yesterday, uh, he would be valued at $460 billion right now. He's probably the richest man who ever lived in the world. He's at wow. the height of Roman Empire. And Herod is also one of the richest people who ever were, lived. And he lives in a gigantic, it's called Herodium, a gigantic fortress castle. He had like 17, but his biggest one was right above Bethlehem. And he's alive right there. They're in the shadow of the power. And Jesus is introduced into the world. And he's like, my kingdom's here now. And here's how my kingdom works. And I happen to love that. Um, and so I'm very compelled by that. And um, if, if you're just still going by the gospel, or the gold, like, here's what the gospel means. And, you're, and you don't understand the kingdom of God. You really don't understand the good news of the kingdom, which is what the gospel actually is. So I would really encourage you to check it out. Cause I think you, you might be compelled in a way that that other stuff like this may make more sense to you. <laughs> well, and this is maybe even just a, a note for myself. Like as I go through more of these interviews on this topic, if we are going to do a, a meaningfully Christian approach to the question of masculinity, which is not the only people I'm going to be asking sure. about it, but if we are, then yeah, that kind of like empire challenging upside down kingdom, approach of Jesus, like that's gotta be kind of phase one, step one. And Jesus was like, like the kind of for shorthand, like God and guns, uh, style that we have today in, in parts of the States, like that is pretty antithetical to, to the kind of predominantly nonviolent, uh, approach of Jesus. And certainly the like, well, when you really are a man is when you're wealthy and powerful and uh, women flock to you because you're the alpha. And Jesus would be like, hold my cross, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> instead of hold my beer. Okay. Like, no, nope. That's not the, uh, that is not the image he did. And, and he did not seek that kind of power at all, actively eschewed it. And well, so, that's, you know. That's why. So if I talk about that on the air, back to the beginning thing, people are like, but you should be talking about power. Okay, well, Jesus says this amazing, he's amazingly non-coercive, isn't he? Like, he lets people walk away. He didn't have to do that. He could have, like, run after him, too. Be like, wait, wait, let me rephrase. Like, like, I mean, the scene with Pontius Pilate is is almost like, you know what, you know what scene in films that that scene most reminds me of? 
it's the scene where the wealthy guy who's really pulling the strings behind the scenes is like, okay, what's your number? Like, what do I got to pay you to make this all go away? That's the scene with Pontius Pilate. And Jesus is like, there's no number. Also, Pilate's kind of like, look, dude, if you're not into power politics, I don't even understand you. I don't even, I don't even have a lens for you. If this is not what you're here for. He's like, are you the king of the Jews or what? Like, what what does this mean? If you're not going to do a power play. Yeah. He doesn't understand. So it is baffling to people. If you're like eschewing the typical means of getting your way. It's a little baffling. It frustrates people. And it frustrated people in Jesus' time. They're like, come on, lower the boom on these people. And uh, he would not do it that way. He's like, I have a different way. Like, like what we need is what we need is a, a fresh Pontius Pilate meme to get shared across like Christian Instagram. And it's like some famous scene of someone going, everybody's got a price. And then it says Pontius Pilate. <laughs> Like that, and he just doesn't get it. And, and that's, yeah. Okay. Well, we, we're, we're out of time. Brant, thank you so much. There's a lot here for me to chew on. I very much appreciate your time. Thanks for writing the book. Thanks for talking with me and onward and upward. We're going to keep processing this and seeing what comes out. Yeah, man. Uh, thank you so much. It's great meeting you and talking to you. And I love your guitars. They're real. Unlike my stupid backdrop. That, that, uh, Brant, for listeners, Brant has an incredible, like, vinyl printed uh, leather bound book backdrop, but it is very clearly like a curtain. <laughs> it's a curtain. I loved it. I, it's the first thing I did was compliment you on the backdrop. <laughs> yeah, I have to point it out. I just can't, I can't allow a fake thing to not be pointed out, but yeah. it's like, you know, yeah. it's funny. It blocks the, it blocks the trash cans. That's all. That's yeah, exactly. There's a lot of stuff hiding behind my chair in this space yeah. right now. It's not uh, it's not a clean space. All right, man. Well, we're going to have a link to, uh, cure.org. We'll have a link to your Amazon authors page, which will have all cool. the books. Is there any other place online? Uh, do you do it like a daily podcast right now, I think, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a roundup of the radio show basically. Okay. So we take the music out. So it's just me and, and Sherry, my producer. And, and what's that show called? It's Brant and Sherry Oddcast. Okay. We will get a link to that as well. If people want to, okay. people want to hear your radio work and yeah, man, be well, appreciate it. Thanks, man. God bless you. See you.